everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I am your host, as usual, with just the zoo of us. This is your favorite animal review podcast. And this week, we have a brand new, very special friend I'm super excited to talk to. This is Dr. Lara Durgovich. Say hi, Lara. Hello, everybody. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. And I'm excited because today we're talking orangutans, right? That is correct. We are going to talk about orangutans. This is really exciting for me because tons of people have asked us to talk about orangutans. Oh, and it good. was one of those things that was like, I wanted to make sure that we were doing them justice by talking to somebody who really understood them um, because there's so much to understand about them. They are a complex, but fortunately well-studied species. <laughs> That's awesome. And you have studied them, right? I have. Yeah. I did my PhD in biological anthropology at Boston University, and I did my dissertation work looking at orangutan hormones and orangutan behaviors, focusing specifically on females and looking at how their hormones and behaviors changed at different stages of their life. I did a lot of work with orangutan urine and came out the other end knowing a lot about orangutans. Wow. How did you get into doing that work? I went into grad school actually thinking that I wanted to study human paleoanthropology. So basically, ancestral species of hominin or anything that exists along the branch of the family tree since the last common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees split off from one another. So Neanderthals and Australopithecus and things like that. And once I was in grad school, I still found that really interesting, but I realized that I thought that living animals were more interesting. And so I ended up taking a winding path that led me to orangutans and did a lot of lab work. Uh, and that's how I ended up with my degree. That's awesome. When you were studying these orangutans, I know that you said it involves like looking at samples from them, uh, non-invasive samples that we've heard. We've heard this term used with some of our other guests when you take like their urine or maybe like a fecal sample or something. Correct. Did that involve like field work? Did you like have to go out to where they are and look at them? So I didn't. There are people who do. So my advisor at BU uh, was a woman named Dr. Cheryl Knott, and she runs a field site called Gunung Palung in Borneo, which is one of the two places on the planet where you can find orangutans. And she does a lot of field work and has other students who do field work and collecting orangutan samples non-invasively in the field, from what I understand, can be very challenging. You actually have to stand underneath their nest that they make at the nighttime and you get there in the early in the morning before they wake up and then you wait for them to go to the bathroom and you have to catch it with a tarp and wow. then use a pipette to get it off the tarp into a test tube and apparently getting peed on is not particularly uncommon. So it's a, a much more rigorous and involved process for people who actually have gone out into the field and done that. I was in the fortunate position that because I was actually focused on captive orangutans, um, those that are living in a couple zoos and other kinds of non-invasive research facilities, the One of the advantages of that is that you can very regularly collect hormones from the same individuals, which lets you answer questions with a different degree of nuance than if you're collecting samples from wild animals. It also means that you can train them to basically pee in a cup for you. And so I had plenty of um, biological material at my disposal <laughs> because these orangutans would very cooperatively pee in a cup and that gets transferred into a tube and then I can go ahead and 
do what I need to do with it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yes, they're very they're very amenable. You give them some juice and they give you a cup of urine. That is a decent treat. I right? You know, they're coming out on the with the big end of the stick, I think as far as they're concerned. They got juice. You got a cup of pee. Like, exactly. <laughs> clearly, they must think we are really weird. <laughs> <laughs> they're like looking at each other like, I don't know, she wants this pee really bad. She Again, we did this yesterday. <laughs> Well, so you're working with these orangutans in in captive settings. Yeah. Did you have a chance to kind of like get to know the orangutans? I didn't very well because a lot of my work was done interfacing with the zookeepers who work with them on a daily basis. And so completely understandably, zoos have a lot of regulations about who can be near the animals and and exposures of different kinds. And there's a lot of really good reasons for those kinds of restrictions. So I did get to go visit some of the orangutans whose biological materials I was working with. But for the most part, my work was kind of distanced from the orangutans themselves. So I did a lot of big theory kinds of questions. But I guess because I had a small sample size of working with these captive individuals, even though I didn't know them personally, I knew a lot about them. So I knew everything from, you know, the day they were born and what their parentage was and a lot of details about their behavior and who they were friends with and who they didn't like and exactly what they were eating. So I had a lot of really good information, but I did not myself have the opportunity to kind of buddy up with the orangutans, as it were. Sure. This is like a parasocial relationship where you have like someone like when you watch a TV show a lot and you feel like you're like best friends with this person. That yeah, you've never exactly. Met. <laughs> yeah. And and then I'll see, you know, headlines. So several of the, the orangutans that I was working with were from the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. And so then I would see headlines. I'd see them featured in news stories or something like that. And I'd be like, oh, those are my girls. And I'd get all <laughs> I get all excited and feel like a proud parent. I'm like, they don't know who I am. But uh, <laughs> Um, but it is it's really cool um to be able to know about them at the level of depth that we can when we're studying captive animals studying wild animals is obviously incredibly valuable but in terms of repeatedly encountering individuals and being able to get consistent data from the same individuals all the time much more challenging, especially when you're dealing with a species like orangutans. So right. there's pros and cons. And it really, you know, the kinds of questions that you can ask differ depending on which study population you're looking at. That makes sense. And I would imagine for for something like a primate who are, are kind of known for their, you know, intricate sort of social relationships and being very like perceptive of their environment, I would imagine that the things going on around them can have a huge effect on their behavior and the sort of things you're observing from them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be true, especially in captivity. And it's just it's a much more opportunistic methodology in the wild, because you just cannot reliably assume that you're going to encounter the same individuals and the same conditions. And so it's, it's much more difficult in that sense to do studies in the field. I bet it's fun, though. I bet it's exciting to go out and see one in the wild. I absolutely intend to at some point. I have an open invitation to the field site. Um, it is simply a matter of finding the time and finances to be able to travel and do that. 
but I, I'm friends with a number of people uh, who have come through the same graduate program who have done field work at the site and have lots of very, very entertaining stories. So if this is anybody's first time listening to this podcast, the thing that we do, we talk about animals and we rate them out of 10, out of three categories. And our first category is effectiveness. So these are things that are built into their body physical adaptations that let them do a really good job of the things that they're trying to do. So for orangutans, these are primates that live up in the trees, right? They are. They are actually the largest arboreal mammal in the world. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, so they are they are big animals and they have a very high degree of what's called sexual dimorphism, which simply means that there's a notable difference between males and females in some kind of characteristic. And in orangutans, the most obvious of those is the size differential. So males, big males are about twice as big as females. Oh, wow. And so the big males, you know, they can get up to be 200 pounds, um, which is really large for an arboreal species. And yet they do spend the vast majority of their time up in the treetops. Wow. That in itself is really cool. I, I love to see a good like arboreal species because there's so many things that you need to like adapt in your body to be able to get around in treetops. So navigating their environment, um, interacting with each other, not getting preyed upon. <laughs> what do you give the orangutan out of 10 for effectiveness? I think I will give them a 9 out of 10 for effectiveness. And that's for a few reasons. I think that, first of all, they do have some incredible adaptations to being arboreal in spite of their size. And so when you mentioned locomotion, one thing that's really interesting about them is that the way that they move through the trees arboreally is very different than the way that a chimpanzee or a much smaller monkey species would move through the trees. They're not uh, walking on top of branches like monkey species tend to do. But they're also not swinging underneath the branches, kind of Tarzan style, which is what chimpanzees do more often. So orangutans have their own sort of locomotive style that's referred to as quadrumanus climbing, which basically means that because all four of their limbs have basically functional hands, they have opposable thumbs on their hands and on their feet, that they can do this kind of clambering through the treetops where they are always maintaining contact with some kind of supportive limb with at least two uh, of their own limbs. And so they're able to shift their weight around in really interesting ways and bend the trees in ways that'll kind of get them across gaps. But it's a very deliberate movement that enables them to be arboreal despite their size and their heft. Uh, so I think that's really cool. I think that in terms of their environment as well, the red color is obviously really interesting. It's a very striking fur color. And at first, people might think, well, that doesn't seem to fit into the jungle. Why would you have a bright red animal in a an environment that's largely green and brown? But it turns out that because of the way that light filters through the jungle and the way that red light versus green light gets filtered out, that the red is actually providing them with decent camouflage in the tree canopy. Um, so they're they're able to move around really efficiently. Um, they're able to blend into their surroundings really efficiently. 
And in terms of, of other aspects of their physical appearance, I would say that the males in particular have some really interesting characteristics, like the cheek flanges, which are those big it's what the, makes a ma- big male orangutan look like. It has like a plate-shaped face. It's like these protruding cheeks. Yeah, like jowls. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they have jowl. They have a, what's called a throat sack. And that is actually like a pouch uh, on the throat that they can use to amplify their voice for giving long calls, territorial long calls. But the cheek flanges are are a less functional characteristic on a day-to-day basis. It seems to be something that has been favored by sexual selection, which is, in this case, the females seem to prefer it. It's cute. Yeah. So there has been selection for males to have these really big dish-shaped faces to uh, exemplify their virility, let's say. It makes me think of like an owl, how like an owl's face is kind of like printed into this like disc. Yeah, a little bit. It's it's kind of discoid. Um, and they're, they're big fat pads, basically. You know, they're just doing their thing. But uh, I think that that in terms of physical appearance, they have a, a lot of really good things going for them. The reason I took a point away and made it a nine is because they are very slow to adapt. And so they have a very slow reproduction. And so the average female orangutan only gives birth once every seven to nine years. They, t- yeah, they have a really, really, really long period of dependency on their moms. So that means that the populations reproduce slowly, which means that they're not able to adapt very quickly to changes in their environment. And that's a challenge right now because of things like deforestation that are changing orangutan environments more rapidly than biology can keep up with. And so they're they're not effective in adapting quickly to their environment, but they're very effective in terms of living in the environment that they have adapted to over the past many millions of years. Yeah. And they've never had to adapt to something so quickly before, right? Exactly. The human human species has introduced entirely new variables into the pace of, of environmental change. And a lot of animal species are, are having trouble keeping up. But orangutans in particular, because they reproduce so slowly, are mm-hmm. uh, especially challenged by that. Yeah. I've heard this kind of discussion before over like reproductive strategies where you either like just make a lot of babies really quickly or you have fewer babies and take a long time, but you like just really invest in them. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what we call life history theory. You can think of it as existing, all species existing on a very broad spectrum. And the two ends of the spectrum are basically what you've just described. You can either be, you know, a fish or a frog and you can have, make lots and lots of babies and invest very little in them parentally. And most of them aren't going to survive, but there's so many of them that it's okay because some of them will survive. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you have species like humans or orangutans, where individuals are giving birth much less frequently, and the amount of investment into each offspring is much higher. So, you know, sometimes you hear it referred to as quality versus quantity. I think that's an oversimplification of what life history theory really is. But yeah, evolution, you know, a lot of people think about evolution as shaping the physical characteristics of a species, and it absolutely does. But natural selection is also going to shape things like reproductive 
scheduling and and the way that a species matures and lives its life. So um, orangutans are very slow. So baby orangutans, yes. you said that they have a long time that they depend on their mamas. They do. Does that mean they just stay babies for like a really long time? They have, they're not babies, I guess. They have a, you know, there is certainly the baby period and then there is an extended juvenile period, I guess. So young orangutans will continue to nurse until they are, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And that doesn't mean they're nursing exclusively for all of that time, but they will continue to nurse at least periodically for all of that time. And they'll stay with their mothers. Uh, They'll stay in very close proximity to their mothers, observing what mom is eating in the rainforest. And, And there's a lot of learning that takes place during that time because they eat you know, over 200 different species of plants. And so it's going to take a number of years for a young individual to learn where in the rainforest you can find certain resources and and what is going to be available at different times. And and so it's not necessarily that they stay babies for a long time, um, but they stay dependent on mom for a long time. Okay. Now you mentioned that they eat plants. They do. Do they only eat plants? They eat some insects. Okay. Um, and so, you know, they're not exclusively plant eaters, but by far the largest component of any orangutan's diet is going to be plants and especially fruit. So they are they are really fruit specialists and that's their preferred food and what they will eat uh, the most of when it's available. If fruit is not as readily available at certain times, then they'll fall back on other types of leaves and pith and bark and things like that. But yeah, they are they are pretty much vegetarian. What does pith mean? Pith is like this woody, pulpy stuff that you find inside the stems of some plants. It's not quite like bamboo, but if you can picture bamboo and you can picture kind of like what the inside of that looks like. Like fibrous. It's really of. fibrous. Yeah. Um, and so it's a food that's not particularly sought out because, it, you know, it's not as good as fruit. It's not as nutritionally rich as fruit, uh, but it's something that they can eat if what they are hoping to find is not available. Okay. This makes sense. Yeah. Do they have to worry about predators? Are there things that eat orangutans? So as babies, they might have to worry about a little moderate predation worry. Depending on which population of orangutans you're looking at, there can be overlap with tigers in their habitat. Generally speaking, once they get to an adult size, their only threats are other orangutans and humans. So Mm. part of that is simply because they do get so big. And part of it is because they are spending the majority of their time up in the canopy of the trees. And so even if they are in an environment with uh, something like a tiger, they're probably not going to encounter it much because they're occupying very different strata of the forest. So generally speaking, predation is not going to be a big problem for them if they can make it past the the baby stage. Sure. And it sounds like once they're young, like they got mom right there to help them out anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's I think, you know, relative to a lot of species, predation risk is certainly going to be very low. Not something that you encounter a lot in the literature reading about 
predation events on orangutans. Sure. So that may be not a huge worry for them. Yeah, not as much. (laughs) They have plenty of other things to worry about, uh, mostly human-related, but uh, getting eaten by a tiger is is probably low on their list of worries. Boy, what a life. (laughs) I know, which is not a bad place to be. You don't want that to be high on your list of worries. They kind of got the best of both worlds, though. They got, like, the advantage of being up in the trees where it's difficult for things to chase Mm -hmm. them. And also, they're huge. So it's like, you know, what is a bird going to do? Like, a bird can't swoop down and take them off. Like, they're good to go. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) I mean, a lot of smaller primate species, I think a lot of people don't often think about this, but one of the major predators of smaller primate species are birds of prey. And so you have various eagle species, for example, in South America and in Africa that will come and just pluck monkeys right out of the tree canopy. And uh, your orangutans are not going to face that same kind of threat from, from a potential arboreal predator. So an orangutan lives up in the trees. Yes. No tail. No you tail. You hear about a lot of arboreal monkeys that use a prehensile tail to help them climb. Mm -hmm. But orangutans don't have this, right? Are there many other ape species that like don't have a tail that stay in the trees? One of the defining characteristics of apes as a group relative to monkeys is that none of the apes have tails. So the apes include gibbons, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, and humans. And none of those species has a tail. Monkey species do have tails of varying size length. Not all monkey species have prehensile tails. There's actually only a small subset of monkey species that can use their tails in a prehensile fashion in order to grab on and and kind of support weight with them. Even though the apes lack that tail, they are very efficient still in terms of moving arboreally through the canopy. So it doesn't seem to be a balance issue. And part of that is likely because they're moving in a different way. Uh, So I mentioned before that monkeys tend to walk on tops of branches. Apes tend to swing below them. And so it's more of an arm-based movement. And you see that apes as a group, with the exception of humans, have much longer arms than legs. And that's because of the way that they have evolved to move through the trees. Kind of using like their weight for momentum, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a more pendulum kind of swinging movement. So the lack of tail does not impede them in terms of being able to move arboreally. It's like a little bit more than that to slow them down. Are they slow? Are they very fast? Orangutans in particular? Yeah. um, They tend to move pretty slowly. Um, As I say, because they are so large and so high up in the canopy, I think that they tend to move a little bit more cautiously than many other primate species um, because they either have farther to fall or falling is potentially more dangerous for them because of their size. Oh yeah. I think they can move fast. You know, if I if I talk to people who have been to uh, study orangutans in the field. And those people will talk about, well, you know, I was with this, I, I was following this one individual through the rainforest, and then suddenly they were gone. And so I think that relative to how fast a human can move through the dense rainforest, you know, they've certainly got us beat. But in terms of comparing, like, the speed at which an orangutan, on average, might move through the trees versus like a chimpanzee, let's say, the chimpanzee is probably moving faster. Okay. I mean, it's like, why would they want to move that fast anyway? 
I was going to say, but they don't really have that many reasons to be to be moving quickly. Um, yeah. In general, the overarching survival strategy for orangutans is all about conserving energy. Um, they've actually evolved uh, metabolically to be able to conserve energy and fat really well to make it through times of scarcity because the Southeast Asian rainforests that they live in go through these really dramatic boom and bust cycles for how much food they're producing. And so orangutans, I think if they can avoid it, really, they don't want to move fast. They want to, they're doing slow, they're doing deliberate, they're, you know, thinking about where they want to go and going only those places. And, you know, laziness is preferred, I guess. (laughs) That makes sense for why they're so chunky, even though all they eat is, well, not all they eat, but like, even though most of what they eat is plants, you know, they're not thin and lean, they're they're nice and plump. Yeah, no, they they have adaptations to retain, to be able to retain energy. And and that can backfire in captivity that uh, sometimes if uh, their diets are not properly managed in captivity. They can have problems with being overweight or obese because that underlying biology of of their body saying, "I got to store fat. I got to store fat. I got to hang on to it." When there's an abundance of food, that backfires on them. Mm-hmm. I have seen many orangutans in different zoo settings, and I feel like when I see them, they're always just vibing. Like they're just <laughs> they're just sitting there, you know. Like they're just kind of like they usually have like a corner, yeah, or like a hammock or something, and they are just like living their absolute best life like they're just (laughs) hanging out except for one time i saw a baby orangutan in a zoo and it was going wild yeah the babies are definitely going to be more active but yeah the adults in general are really just they they spend a lot of time just chilling um (laughs) and unlike most primate species they're not hyper social so it used to be that orangutans were referred to as the solitary or semi-solitary ape and the impression of scientists was that they really individuals spent most of their time alone with the exception of mothers and, and offspring and that perspective has changed more recently turns out they're a little bit more social than we originally gave them credit for but still relative to chimpanzees or gorillas or baboons or any you know a lot of other primate species that tend to live in in groups, orangutans are still more solitary. And so, you know, especially in a zoo setting, they, they don't tend to be housed in large groups because that's not natural for them. Uh, and so they, they tend to just kind of be doing their own thing. I love it. It makes me feel at peace when I see them hanging out. Because they're like kind of looking back at you and they're like, yeah, this is my life. Yeah. Honestly, I could sit in an orangutan enclosure at a zoo for hours, just kind of sitting and vibing with them and, you know, coloring (laughs) or writing in a notebook or something like that, you know, just a quiet, companionable solitude. Just enjoying the space. Yeah. Just doing nothing together. Exactly. (laughs) There are worse ways to spend a day. Oh my gosh, yes. This is like, I I crave this. <laughs> I, I know, you're like, I have two children over there. I want solitude. <laughs> well, since we're talking about like the ways that they interact or rather don't necessarily interact with each other, I want to talk about their behavior. Okay. I'm really excited to talk about this because I feel like primates always have something interesting to say <laughs> in, the, in the behavior department. So once again, if you haven't listened to the show before, our second category that we rate animals on is ingenuity. Okay. So these are behavioral adaptations, so clever things that they're doing or just strategies that they're maybe using, anything that they're doing with their body. So what would you give the orangutan for ingenuity? 
I got to give them a 10 on ingenuity. They are exceedingly clever. And I mean that not just in terms of kind of baseline intelligence, but in terms of behavioral adaptability. And we know this both from studies of orangutans living in captivity in, in zoo kinds of settings, but also from programs that exist that will rescue, for example, orphaned orangutans and then rehabilitate them and try to reintroduce them into a wild environment because that's preferable than having to have them in captivity for their entire lives. And these rehabilitant orangutans, they can just be a hoot when you read about them because they are ostensibly, you know, trying to learn to be orangutans in these rehabilitation programs, but they are obviously also being influenced to a certain degree by the presence of humans in their environment. And there is an element of kind of enculturation that can happen where they, the orangutans will often start copying certain kinds of human behaviors, um, you know, brushing their teeth and washing clothes. And um, you'll get stories about orangutans stealing canoes. And um, they're just, they're incredibly, they're incredibly smart and they're incredibly kind of cunning. One of my favorite stories to expose people to when I'm teaching about primate intelligence and things like that um, is something I heard actually in a radio lab episode once upon a time about animal intelligence. And they were talking about uh, a group of orangutans or a couple pair of orangutans maybe that, that kept escaping from their zoo enclosure and nobody could figure out how they kept escaping from their zoo enclosure. And it turned out that one of the orangutans had basically fashioned a, a pick for the lock and had been hiding it and picking the lock and just like letting them out and they were going exploring and so forth. So I think in terms of ingenuity, you know, you're talking about not just a primate, but an ape and they're, they're just so smart. And as I say, they, they are having a lot of difficulty adapting to the changes in their natural environment right now, simply because they're aren't a lot of options available to them for ways to deal with that. Um, but if you're thinking about ingenuity in terms of behavioral flexibility and creativity, then I got to give them a 10. I feel like you can feel like when you see one and you like kind of look at one, even when you look at one in a zoo, I feel like you can kind of feel that sort of like understanding. There's something about their faces that yeah. I, I don't know whether it's because their eyes are, are close together like human eyes are, or I don't know what it is exactly about their faces, but there's something about their faces that kind of elicits a feeling of wisdom, sort of underlying yeah. wisdom. <laughs> so yeah. And you know, there there are also instances of orangutans being uh, language trained in captivity. So they there have been individuals who have partaken in, in different kinds of long-term studies uh, looking at language acquisition, either in terms of using sign language to communicate with humans or using uh, what's called a lexigram keyboard, which is basically a whole series of abstract symbols that they learn to associate with particular words and concepts. And so the the National Zoo in uh, DC has, you know, a program called Think Tank where they do studies of cognition. And I know that orangutans are among the animals that they look at there. There is a population of, of orangutans at the zoo in Indianapolis um, with a guy named Rob Shoemaker, who, you know, they do some of the language studies there. So they're real smart. Can't dock them on the intelligence. Not even a little bit. No, you just can't. 
And you said that your research was on some of the like mating and reproductive behaviors of the orangutans. What kind of things did you find in your research? Yeah. So I was looking at when it came to behavior, I was looking at trying to figure out whether the age of individual females and the kind of reproductive status of individual females in terms of where they were in the timing of their ovulatory cycle, whether those factors influenced either the motivation that females had to mate with males or the degree to which males found females attractive. So kind of trying to come at that mating encounter, the potential mating encounter from the perspective of both the female and the male, like what's motivating them to want to mate at different times. And I found that there wasn't a lot of relation deterministic kind of evidence that, you know, if a female was at the point in her cycle where she could potentially become pregnant, that that really influenced her mating behavior very much. So I mentioned earlier, I was working with a very small sample size. Um, and so I, I drew some conclusions, but they were kind of initial conclusions, further study required, et cetera, et cetera. The overarching impression I got was that there's just a lot of uh, individualism involved. When you look at a species like orangutans, the mating behavior is much less programmed by hormones. It's, it's kind of emancipated from those constraints. And so individuals will, the kinds of behavioral encounters that they have will be much more dependent on the personality of an individual or how well two orangutans get together. So a female might be really motivated to mate with one male and have no interest at all in another male. Um, so there's there turned out to be a lot of variability. But one thing I did find was that it was not strictly tied to what was going on hormonally. That's really interesting. Yeah. Especially considering like the way that humans, I think, tend to think of animals as being like purely driven by nothing but like instinct and, yeah. you know, just everything that's like baked into their animal body and right. mind. But then when you're like, oh, actually, it's not that. They actually have things going on. <laughs> They're not seasonally breeding. It's not like there's a particular time of year when they all, when all the females mate and get pregnant and then they all have babies at the same time. So by virtue of the kind of their position on the evolutionary tree, they don't have the same kinds of constraints that a lot of other animals have when it comes to t the timing of reproduction or things like that. A little bit more aligned with human. <laughs> yeah, they're really similar to humans in so, so many ways, including in reproductive patterns. And I mean that not only in terms of the, the very slow pace of reproduction, but also in terms of I, I don't want to get into a lot of specifics here because I know this is a family-friendly fr program, but in terms of uh, the details of, of kind of what a mating encounter looks like, orangutans mating with one another have a lot more similarities in, in certain ways with humans than chimpanzees or gorillas, for example. So even though they're more distantly related to us evolutionarily, behaviorally, in some ways, they're closer to us. That's really cool. I feel like it makes me feel really connected to them. Like when I when I see them yeah. in, in person, it makes you feel like I I get you. <laughs> <laughs> they they just always they seem chill. Like they they, they know who they are. They're just very peaceful. They uh, elicit a sense of peace. I think. 
Yeah. Does this play out in the wild, like outside of mating interactions? Does this play out in the way that they encounter each other in the wild? Like, do they retain this sort of peaceful energy? Like, say, like, I don't know, a male orangutan is just walking around and runs into another male orangutan. Is there like problems? That would probably not end well. So adult males do not tend to get along with one another. Males will maintain territories. I mentioned earlier that they'll use this very loud long call um, vocalization to kind of announce their presence and defend their territories. And so if two males, two adult males encounter one another, uh, that is unlikely to be a friendly encounter and may involve violence or, or confrontation of some kind. Females that encounter one another are probably going to be more relaxed. Um, and, you know, maybe there will be some grooming. It, it's often going to depend on the context in which they encounter one another. So, you know, if there's a tree that happens to be producing a ton of fruit that attracts multiple females and their offspring, and, you know, they end up congregating in this tree, that's probably fine. And they're probably all going to either ignore each other or interact in, in a relatively benign way. But when you're thinking about male male social encounters, those are probably not going to have a good outcome, a peaceful outcome. And when you're thinking about male and female social encounters, there's going to be a ton of variability depending on whether the female is mating, open to mating, receptive to mating at that point, and who the individual male that she's encountering is. So those are going to be, I think, probably harder to predict pattern-wise than if you're thinking, okay, what happens when a female runs into a female? What happens when a male runs into a male? Those are more predictable outcomes. But there is a little bit of like personal taste involved. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, they, they have standards. <laughs> and they run into each other and they just have to have a quick little chat like what kind of music do you like yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. swipe right i mean it's like you said like they don't have a lot of other threats yeah no they really don't um other orangutans can potentially be dangerous and humans mm -hmm. obviously are are a threat but other than that they're kind of at the top of the food chain so to speak which is i always think that's interesting when you have like an herbivore yeah i mean you know it's not it might not be the best comparison but you know think of like a giraffe or an elephant or just like one of these really large animals that is mostly eating vegetation and they're just big and so other things aren't messing with them because they're not as big there are evolutionary advantages to being large you just got to eat a lot of food, though. That's the thing. Yes, that it is, it is energetically demanding, but that's part of why they have evolved to be good at conserving fat. It's a good trade-off. Yeah. And I mean, if you're eating plants, they're right there. What are they going to do? Run away from you? Exactly. No. Yes. The hunting, <laughs> the level of effort is is somewhat lower. You don't have to chase your food down as much. Since we were talking about like, you know, when you when you see one, you feel this kind of like connection with them. What would you rate the orangutan for aesthetics? Can I give them like an 11 or a 12? Like they're so beautiful. <laughs> they are. I just posted recently on, on Twitter a photo of an orangutan just like owning a camera. It was like they're just – they're so photogenic um, both in their natural habitat – and in captivity, um, the, you know, the striking red hair, um, <laughs> the soulful eyes, the, uh, I, I think they're just gorgeous animals. And they have this sort of long hair too, right? It's a little bit silky. Yeah, yeah, they do. It's especially with some of the bigger males. That's another one of these um, sexually selected characteristics that 
big males in particular tend to have this kind of really long, silky hair and um, it can start. Very cover girl. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, you need, it's like, maybe, maybe it's Maybelline. I don't know. But like <laughs> they, they really have a very striking aesthetic and I just, I don't know. I think they're beautiful. I've seen orangutans, like pictures of orangutans with very impressive beards. Yeah. It's so cool. Bo- both males and females. Uh, so, you know, either, either or, but yeah, they, they have a relatively hairless face but the the rest of their body is just covered in this gorgeous red fur. And then the males obviously are very striking in terms of having those cheek pads and the big throat sack. And I think the fact that their limb proportions are different from ours as well makes them look really interesting to us um, because their arms are so much longer than their legs. And so the way that they tend to if they are on the ground, the way that they tend to sit is very imposing looking because of just this clear upper body strength that they have by virtue of their locomotion. I feel like when I see one that's just like lounging, they look very regal, you know, because they look so like unbothered <laughs> and just like commanding and and secure and confident. They look they look kind of regal. Yeah, me. <laughs> I mean, I think being an orangutan is not not a bad life to live, uh, you know, or traditionally speaking would not have been a bad life to live. I think a lot, you know, they're, they face a lot of troubles right now uh, as a result of habitat loss and not so much hunting for meat as the effects of, of hunting for the pet trade. Um, mm. People who are, who kill mother orangutans and take the babies and try to sell them as pets. Mm. Um, being an orangutan in today's world is very challenging. But for our, most of their evolutionary history, I think being an orangutan would, was a pretty good lifestyle. You know, on the topic of challenges that they're facing right now, for somebody who might be listening and is just kind of, you know, the average everyday person. Yeah. But what are like some things that just like the average person could do to help orangutans? There are lots of good organizations where you can donate money directly for conservation purposes or uh, some of those rehabilitation programs that I was talking about. So I'm happy to send you, if you want me to, I'm happy to send you a list of organizations that do good work in that sense. But another thing that anybody can do that takes relatively little effort is to pay attention to the consumer products you're using specifically in terms of whether they contain palm oil. And if they do, you want to try to buy products that are made with sustainable palm oil because palm oil plantations are a big driver of habitat loss where orangutans live on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra. And you'll sometimes hear people say, you know, well, everybody should just stop using palm oil. It's not quite so simple as that, but people can definitely make a difference by trying to buy products that are using sustainable palm oil um, because that can help protect more of their um, existing habitat, remaining habitat. And from from what I've heard about, you know, palm oil plantations is that it's having a big effect on not just orangutans, but like biodiversity in general. Yeah, I mean, it's responsible for a lot of forest loss, unfortunately. And, and that's not restricted to either to palm oil or to Borneo or Sumatra. There are many parts of the world where clearing of land for agricultural use for various kinds of crops is just destroying a lot of natural habitat. And that's going to affect all of the animals that 
would normally live there. So in the case of orangutans, it's palm oil. And palm oil, unfortunately, is in so much stuff that we use. People don't realize that how ubiquitous it is. But, you know, there are programs in place and efforts in place to try to make palm oil more sustainable and to try to look at alternatives. And so just being aware, I guess, of, of that as an issue and, and trying to take note of what you might be using that has palm oil and whether or not it's sustainable, you know, that's that's an easy one that people can do. I really hope that, you know, anybody listening would feel inspired and moved to look into how they can help because orangutans, you know, being this sort of large, charismatic animal, um, they're going to be attention grabbers, right? Yeah. And so hopefully that can start a whole thought process about like, oh, well, what can we do to help the rainforest in general? That would be great. Yeah, they definitely fall under the charismatic megafauna title. They are big, splashy mammals um, who get a lot of attention. But as you say, the truth is that if we're protecting, if we think about it in terms of protecting the habitat that they live in, then you're not just protecting their antans, you're protecting everything that lives in that habitat. So Mm -hmm. in terms of being kind of a representative for that habitat, if by drawing a lot of attention to orangutans, you can benefit the entire ecosystem, then that's great. I would definitely encourage anybody listening to go check that stuff out. And before we sign off, I wanted to give you a chance to just kind of let people know if there's anything you're working on right now that you want people to know about, where they can find you, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. So I am... I'm a bit itinerant, so I don't have a permanent academic home. So the the best, the easiest way to find me, honestly, is on Twitter, probably, where my handle is at Tinkering Primate with the the number eight. And I am I have a couple irons in the fire in terms of some creative projects that I'm working on that I I can't quite comment on yet, but I'm hoping will maybe come to fruition at some point this year, or at least start to come to fruition at some point this year. I have a TED Talk I I can mention that uh, is not about orangutans. It's actually about a different aspect of, of evolutionary biology. Everybody should totally feel free to reach out if you have any questions about orangutans because I just like talking about them a lot. <laughs> I will also mention, because I have you, and I'm okay with plugging other podcasts on my podcast, that you were on Ologies. I was, yeah. I went on Ologies and I spoke with Allie Ward about orangutan and human reproduction and uh, focused on things from a different angle than what we're talking about today. Yeah, that one is not family friendly. So if you're listening no, with kids. No, it's not. <laughs> Although I know she does do bleeped episodes, so there probably is a somewhat family-friendly version out available, um, but you'd have to check that website to find out. But yeah, that one was a, um, a little bit little bit less G-rated. That one's rowdy. But, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that happens sometimes when you're talking about reproduction. Right. It's just part of the game. Yeah, you just exactly. got to be prepared for that. But it's, it's great. Yeah. It's just not family-friendly. So just be advised if you're going to go listen to that. Now, if you were listening to this and you were like, ooh, I want some of those raunchy deets, like, go listen to that. <laughs> yeah. I do talk a little bit more about uh, orangutan mating habits and details of menstruation and things like that. If this has not sated your thirst for orangutan knowledge, then there is more out there. Um, go follow Lara on Twitter and... I can't wait to hear some of the some of the more things that you're working on. Well, I hope to be able to share good news in the near future. I'll keep my fingers crossed for thank you. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you Laura. so much for having me. This was super fun. It was. I'm I'm thankful to have gotten to know you and I'm also thankful to have gotten to know orangutans a bit better. I'm definitely going to feel a deeper appreciation next time I Excellent. See them. And if you have any other questions <laughs> that you think of, feel free to ping me. I will happily answer them. 
Thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.